you hear a lot of people talk about having a fear of failure. Uh, so for me, fear of failure was a palpable, real thing. I never wanted to be back there again, so to speak. On this episode of the How To Business Show, we sit down with Thomas Flaherty, franchising expert, longtime corporate executive, and all around good human being. We discuss what it's like doing business in international markets, the role a CEO plays in large companies, and what Thomas is up to now. Hope you all enjoy the show. Mr. Thomas Flaherty, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing excellent. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's jump right into it. So you and I were speaking over the weekend uh, about the show, and you actually started telling a story that I really would like to hear you expand on. You were uh, president and CEO of Agile Pursuits Franchising Incorporated, and you mentioned that when you got the job, there was a feeling of, what now? Kind of, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, as entrepreneurs, a lot of people feel that. When the buck stops with you, it's like, you know, you get to make those decisions on where you spend your time, what do you do about your day, and paralysis by analysis kicks in. And you actually had a really interesting way of going about, you know, fighting that. So can you kind of expand on that story? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we can talk about anything you want in the history leading up to that. But at Agile Pursuits, you know, Procter & Gamble is a huge company, right? Not just a Fortune 5 company, but like a Fortune 20 company. Um, so coming from the outside, number one, is different. Most people go to work for Procter & Gamble right out of college, and they work there their entire career. Um, so I had worked most of my career outside of Procter & Gamble and went into Procter & Gamble um, really as the VP of franchising for this new experiment, they called it, um, where they were going to take some very well-known brands and franchise them. So I had a career in franchising, um, and a mentor of mine was actually at the time president and CEO when I started. Uh, and he passed the baton on to me when he retired. But yeah, when I became CEO, and I've been in leadership positions since I was in my late 20s, uh, starting at Papa John's. Um, so promoted pretty young in life. Um, and of course, as we all know, young in life, you think you know everything. And uh, it's a lot different when I, the way I call it is when you're on the hot seat. Yep. You can sit back and take pot shots. You can be Monday morning quarterback. You can talk about, oh my gosh, I can't believe that leader, whoever the leader is, it doesn't have to be the CEO, made this call or made that call or they acted this way or that way. It's easy to take those pot shots or armchair quarterback when you're not the quarterback. Uh, so when I became CEO, uh, I told Tanner, I, I've made a list of 10 very simple questions. I didn't want it to be over overly complica complicated, easy for me to say. Um, so I said, you know, I'm going to talk to some CEOs. I'd worked with a, a lot of people, fortunately, in my career. Uh, one of the things I was telling Tanner, in your career, when you're the age you guys are now, uh, you will all grow to become in prominent positions uh, in your careers. So I know CEOs now, but I knew them back when they were just dude, you know, guys you hung out with and friends of yours and doing your job or what have you. So I had a number of people I could call upon uh, for advice. So I was telling Tanner uh, when I became president and CEO, it was something that wasn't unexpected. I would say I always wanted to kind of be CEO one day. But uh, it's funny when you think about, okay, so now I am the president and CEO. So what do I do? How do I act? What do I wear? You know, what do I do with my time? 
So I created a list of 10 questions and I talked to 10 different CEOs um, that I knew, some personally and some I knew of and were kind enough to grant me the time. Uh, and I asked them the same questions and just wanted to see the commonalities. Um, there are a lot of things. One of the things I was telling Tanner is most people that are CEOs are really finance experts or they're the operations expert in their field. So regardless of your industry, your business, what you're in, you get where, you know, to the CEO because you worked your way up that ladder. Uh, so when you get to the top, though, you have to stop being a marketing expert. You have mm -hmm. to stop being an operations expert or a franchising expert or an attorney or whatever you are, whatever your background. You have to stop doing that. Don't dismiss that. But that's not your job now. Your job now is president and CEO. So I studied a lot. I'm a voracious reader, as we were talking about earlier, and studied a lot about what do CEOs do? What's their primary role? Uh, what are their principles? What do they stand for? And uh, many CEOs that I talked to, you know, about 40% of the things are exactly what you would imagine. Mm -hmm. They were exactly what you would predict that you would want to do or, or should do as CEO. Um, and then about 60% though were really relative to that person and their history. Um, you know, when we talk about backgrounds, I'll get a little bit into it uh, in more detail, but I say everybody, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, um, Forrest Gump is thrust into all of these situations. He doesn't strategically say, I'm going to go get shot in the buttocks uh, right. He, he falls into these weird situations and he rolls with it. He's, you know, flexible and he does what he has to do in that time. So rather than being reactive to what I was doing, I wanted to be proactive and say, what's, what should I be doing? But the, the theme that I got from most CEOs were, um, you know, you're the leader, number one. So you have to role model being a leader. And I'd always been, and still am to this day and will always be uh, a voracious study uh, or student of leadership. Leadership is key. Um, leadership doesn't mean you have CEO on your business card, by the way. Leadership is more of a state of mind. Uh, but most of them said it's pretty important if your company's profitable, right? Captain Obvious. Uh, so you should probably focus on revenue and profitability. Uh, I know some of your other podcasts you talked about EBITDA, multiples of EBITDA, and emotionally talking to somebody and valuing their business when they think it's worth a billion dollars and it's mm -hmm. really worth negative value. Um, but most of them said profitability is pretty important. Obviously, profitability is very important. A lot of companies, including Amazon, right, one of the biggest companies on the, the planet, uh, you read about Apple, they were not profitable for years. Uh, in fact, Steve Jobs was fired as CEO from his own company. So, Long story short, profitability. Uh, a lot of them said growth, right? We were talking about history and quotes uh, earlier. Ray Kroc has a great one. Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, uh, said you're either green and growing or you're ripe and rotting. So think about that for a second. You have to be dynamic. You have to be constantly thinking about how to grow, how to be better as a human being, uh, but also as a business. So how do you grow? Um, Growth is pretty important, much like profitability. So in the spirit of you're either green and growing or ripe and rotting, you got to figure out a way, what's this company going to do? Think about the blockbusters of the world. <clears throat> Blockbuster dominated the video rental business, dominated it. I mean, there was it was a monopoly. They gobbled up mom and pop shops or individually owned businesses. 
and they grew through consolidation. They didn't just grow organically, you know, building their own stores. They would go into a Louisville, Kentucky and buy 70% of the, you know, video rental shops. So Blockbuster is no longer in business. Is it because they were not smart human beings? Um, probably not. They were probably very, we've all heard the Enron smartest people in the room. You know, you can have brilliant people that are not clever. Um, and you have to be smart and clever. There's a difference, but Blockbuster is no longer in business this day. Uh, enter a small startup called Netflix, uh, who did essentially the same business model, but it was mailing at the time DVDs to your home, um, instead of having to go to a bricks and mortar uh, commercial retail establishment and peruse the aisles and pick out your, you know, movie that you're going to watch. So the point of that is you have to grow. Uh, growing means sometimes it's total paradigm shift. Um, you could be in an industry that is awesome. I tell people uh, I love to mentor and, and pass along. You know, I'm big on uh, Sir Richard Branson says, you know, if you've been uh, lucky, not ambitious or successful but lucky enough to ascend you should send the elevator back down for the next person um, so I'm big in passing that mentorship uh, along but it might be total ment total paradigm shift that you have to consider uh, with your business um, so you think about you know Blockbuster decided oh we're going to put blinders on we're not going to pay attention to this Netflix that's never going to work mailing DVDs to people's house that's never going to work and then enter streaming, right? And just killer, industry killer. So killed Blockbuster. So think about growth is not just growth of whatever your current business model is. Uh, your business model may be fantastic. Uh, but when I mentor people and I talk about this whole Blockbuster uh, thing, I think think back to none of us were here, not even me, the old guy in the room. Uh, but circa 1900, you could be the best carriage maker on the planet. I'm talking the best, right? Horse-drawn carriage, because that's how people got around before the car. You could make the Rolls-Royce of carriages, and I'm the best uh, leather upholsterer. I'm the best wood carver. I make the nicest wheels and really good suspension. I'm not going to worry about that car. That car's silly. That thing explodes. You know, people get killed on the street with those. I'm going to continue being a carriage maker. So you're obsolete. Um, so point there. Growth is important, but it's not just growth of your current business model. And then the third thing uh, that was pretty much in the commonality of all the 10-point the questionnaires was culture. And it sounds obvious, again, but if you think about the CEO is the head, right? They always say, you know, if you want to uh, really stop something, you cut off the head of the snake, so to speak. Uh, but the head also drives the snake, Um Snake is a bad analogy here, but the point of that is <clears throat> the culture of an organization starts with the CEO. If the CEO walks around and he's lambasting people and he's mean and he's a jack wagon, uh, that's a word I use to avoid uh, cursing, uh, often jack wagon. <laughs> it's very uh, unique, but also very fitting. You can be a jack wagon. You can walk around and berate people and slam your head, you know, hand on the table and smash a stapler up against the wall to get your result like Jack Welch of, you know, GE. If you've read about him, he's a very, you know, command and control. Um, that's going to be the culture of the rest of your organization because, you know what, people are going to be like, well, 
that's how Jack acts, so we better act that way or we're out. If your leader is passive, um, you know, and he fails to make a decision and he flounders and he, you know, doesn't do what he needs to do and he's like, oh, you make the decision or you make the decision or I want to be nice and friendly and let's just all get along and be kind, um, you know. There's an expression in Hollywood calling that says it's not show friends, it's show business, mm-hmm. right? So a leader has to make a call. You're going to alienate pe- some people. You're going to make some people happy, uh, but you're going to alienate people. People are all different. We have our own, and I won't go down a rabbit hole, but we have our own, uh, as human beings, a genetic cocktail uh, of predisposition of how we're going to act based on our, our genetics. And then we have kind of the first four years, really, of your life. Uh, whoever told you good boy or good girl uh, for doing that or bad boy, bad girl, um, you remember that and it sticks with you and it's with you right now. That's how you make decisions. That's how human make humans make decisions. You don't want to uh, acknowledge that because you're like, no, I have free will. I can do whatever I want to do. But whenever you make a decision, I'm talking whenever, not sometimes, your predisposition instantly is to think back to, oh, my mom or dad or cousins or siblings or aunts, uncles, whoever I was around for the first year, four years of my life. If they told me good job or bad job, that's how I'm still acting today. Um, so the point of that is the culture. Uh, you can be a pacifist, you can be a jack wagon, uh, or you can take the third way, uh, as they say, and try to be a decent human being who has to make tough business decisions. Um, so very long way to answer your question, uh, but there's a lot of things that CEOs do similarly, and then there's some, depending on if you have, like I said, an operations or a legal or marketing background, you kind of fall to that, but don't fall to that. Use it if it's a strength uh, for the company, but also have the discipline to realize you're the president and CEO, you're the ultimate leader of that company. So it doesn't matter if I was a franchising expert or a sales or again, marketing, whatever it is, keep that as a strength, uh, but open your mind and realize that's not your job. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. So you give this questionnaire out and you said the 40% is kind of intuitive stuff, growth, culture, profit that you kind of got across the board, right? Yeah. Looking back on it now, what would you say would be your 60% that you said is individual to the person if you were to take this questionnaire now that kept you in that position for nearly a decade? Great question. Um, it reminds me instantly, too, of a story. Uh, one of the guys that I used to mentor, and this has been probably 10 years ago or so, but, you know, he went to law school, <clears throat> and he's like, I want to be this really good corporate attorney. Uh, but, you know, I was a dope smoking bass player in college and, you know, that's who I am. And now I have to be this uh, attorney. Um, my guidance to him was don't lose that. Um, you got to be you, whoever you are, whatever role you're in, have the uh, you know cognizant ability to study <clears throat> and make yourself better and constantly evolve, right? The world is dynamic, um, moving underneath us all the time keep what who you are as a core person uh, provided it's good Uh, if you what you do is bad then don't keep that i'm kidding Uh, but keep who you are as a core human being Uh, i related to this gentleman instantly because i you know i played guitar 
I've played guitar since I was 12. Um, you know, and I used to, we were talking about a place that was right down the street from here. I used to jump on stage with bands and sing or play guitar or whatever all the time. <clears throat> and it was fun back then because they were all my buds who grew up to be, again, prominent business people or attorneys or what have you. Um, at the time, it was just fun, but I didn't lose that myself. Uh, I still love music. I'm still very passionate about that. I, my guidance to him, too, was, you know, uh, he was really struggling with that evolution of that's who I am. I can't be this corporate attorney. And I'm like, no, you can be both. Take the strengths from that. Take your core personality and, you know, evolve, adapt, right? In biology, you adapt or die. Mm -hmm. uh, so adapt. Um, I told him jumping up on the stage and singing or playing guitar or whatever, that's not something that most people, um, there may be some rare people. Most people on the planet get nervous when they're in front of a crowd, right? You've all heard the stories of I'd rather, you know, death and taxes are, are better than getting up in public speaking. Um, I'd rather die. Um, what did being a bass player on the stage teach you? Right? It taught you that you're going to get comfort, uh, with being uncomfortable because even as a bass player or a guitar player or a singer or whatever, you're uncomfortable when you get on the stage at first, right? I mean, you get into whatever you're doing, you relax or whatever, but at first it's like, Oh my God, I'm on the stage in front of all these people. Take that strength, right? If you're speaking at a conference about employee benefits or, you know, corporate law litigation, whatever the case is, remember you were on stage playing bass and singing back up or whatever you were doing. Think of that experience. Uh, you've done this before, you can conquer it again. Uh, but also, by the way, it's cool. Um, that's a very, very uh, disciplined word, cool. Um, I'm kidding, of course, but cool meaning don't lose your personality. Nobody wants to just talk to a stoic corporate attorney or employee benefits attorney. Have a personality. Talk to people about your love for music and things like that. It humanizes you. Um, so the 60%, again, 40% is the things I talked about with growth, culture, you know, making sure you're profitable, things like that. But 60% more were the personality or human sides of things, my personal attributes that got me to today. Um, you know, they talk about, uh, they, they say a lot of things. Uh, they talk about things like you can't, really get rid of your bad habits uh, or what you're not good at. We're all not good at something. We're all not good at many things, whether we want to uh, face that or not. But we're all usually good at something. You spent time in your life, whatever you've done, whether it's bass or guitar or other things, <clears throat> you've spent time being an expert at something. Uh, so know when you're an expert, back to being a good leader, know where your expertise is and use that. Know where your expertise is not and use the other people on your team for that. Uh, it also helps them grow. That's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate you touching on the importance of uh, authenticity, I think, is kind of what you're getting exactly. at. And um, one thing that always intrigues me is when, when you think historically what uh, people looked for as investors in a company and what they wanted from a CEO is to drive profits for stakeholders. And that's slowly starting to change in today's modern uh market, you're starting to see CEOs take a different positions on, you know, even political issues or just employee rights and things they normally didn't ESG. focus on ESG, all those different things. But in looking at these different aspects of 
what leaders are supposed to talk about, what leaders are supposed to do. It's really hard to ultimately measure or judge a leader. And without talking about profit, what are some ways that you look at judging yourself as a leader, not even judging, but measuring your success as a leader and other leaders' success? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Um, ultimately, everything has a scorecard. Um, I think in, unfortunately, and my wife will attest to this, I think in spreadsheets, right? I think in charts. I think in uh, a very linear path of this to that. Um, the world is a spectrum, um, but I also measure things from a scorecard perspective of there's a minimally acceptable of everything and then there's an optimal uh, of everything, but it depends on what you're doing. Um, what do I mean by that? If I'm walking from here um, to the car out there, there's a direct path that's the most optimal path to get there, but is walking to the car the most important thing I'm going to do? today uh, right it's not so for me for example it's a, it's a challenge to think about <clears throat> i want to do everything optimally with excellence all the time literally uh, and that's both a blessing and a curse um, so i have to in my mind think about um, what are the things that are less important and what are the things that are more important and it's really important to isolate uh, focus is a word I use very often, but it's very important to isolate the things that are your focused priorities uh, and making sure you dang well better be doing those things optimally. The other things that are not as important, your your core competencies or your core capabilities or, or priorities, minimally acceptable may be okay. Um, so I think that's uh, part of it. Uh, leaders should be judged on a scorecard. Uh, so part of that is the growth, the profitability, the culture, uh, and there are a lot of way you can, ways you can measure those things. Uh, growth is obvious, right? Um, you can show whatever business line, again, you're in, you can show that I've grown from this to that. Uh, you pick the metrics. Um, in my world, it's uh, franchising. So growth equals uh, essentially two really important things. Um, Papa John's, for example, I worked for Papa John's for many, many, many years, starting as a delivery driver when I was 17 years old and ending up as the vice president of global business development, global business development, right? It sounds ominous, um, but you can measure, um, whatever you're doing, um, by a couple of different things. Papa John's is a publicly traded company. So to this day, um, every period of every quarter of every year, is measured on how many units did you open and how are your sales this year compared to this period or quarter or year last year. Uh, so a CEO is definitely going to be measured on things like that. Um, those core things, like I said, um, with culture, um, you know, you can do employee surveys and things like that to understand that I may think I'm a wonderful CEO and I'm modeling the role you know, role modeling the behavior that I want my employees to ro to to behave like. Um, but if you do an employee survey uh, and they're like, well, you know, that's great, but I'm not getting paid enough and I, and I need more days off and we don't get to work from home and, 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 right? There are many things. So if you do an employee survey and the results come back, you know, 50% positive and your goal is 75 to 80% using, uh, you know, just 
basic numbers, you probably have a culture problem. So here you said, you know, I've been focusing on culture. Well, what the heck does that mean? Uh, culture means your employees should have a pretty reasonably uh, good expectation that they can grow with the company, uh, that they can be happy, uh, they can reach fulfillment, right? Um, we were talking about Benjamin Franklin uh, earlier, and one of my favorite quotes of all time is he says, a wealthy person is somebody that's satisfied with their portion. Hard stop, awkward pause. Um, so for Elon Musk, when is he satisfied with his portion, right? It's way up there, but people usually have a ceiling. Uh, I don't care who you are, what lot in life, where you started from, where you end. Uh, people have a ceiling. Uh, so most people get to a point where they're like, well, my life's pretty good. You know, I'm not going to work any harder. I'm, I'm done and I'm not going to stress a whole lot. Some people are like, no, I'm going to get better every day and I'm going to do things every day. And my number, right, I have a number, whether it's revenue or net worth or whatever that number is, I'm going to reach that number. Uh, but most people get to a point where they're like, eh, it's pretty good. Life's pretty good. I'm happy right now. Um, so you can you can measure a lot of different things. But again, the point of that is there's a scorecard uh, and there are metrics for everything. If you're CEO, again, regardless of industry, you're going to be measured on are you growing the company? Is the company profitable? Is your culture good? But the 60% of things uh, may be the company's performing brilliantly but you've just scorched the earth behind you, right? We did everything we could. We had a great 2022, uh, but we've ruined every relationship we have. Uh, our employees are miserable. Uh, we made a lot of money. Uh, as Ricky Bobby would say, love that money. Uh, <laughs> but you've scorched the earth behind you. Um, so I would say think of the scorecard and the metrics that are most important, but there is a spectrum again of minimally acceptable to optimal uh, for everything. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Um, when you were talking about, you know, that the happiness and being fulfilled, was there a moment in your career you felt like you were, you know, really driven trying to hit these numbers and, and do this and do that. And then you got to a point where you're just like, Hmm, pretty, pretty good now. Yeah, it's a great question. It's, I take my <clears throat> my own medicine, as they say. Um, I think your life and your success, um, you know, I've contemplated many times uh, in my own life, what does success mean? Uh, what do I be, want to be known as, right? It's not being morbid, but at the end of our journey, at the end of the trip, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Um you know, those things are really important and the steps you take along the way are really important. So for me, um, I've been conflicted, I would say, uh, many times in my life. Um, and, oh, it's, you know, life's pretty good. Like I said before, the money's pretty good. Or this is pretty good. Um, and then I remember um, back to being a student of leadership and servant leadership. Um, you're never finished. Uh, and back to, again to the Ray Kroc you're either green and growing, ripe and rotting. Um, if you're green and growing, that means you continually learn. Uh, you never stop. Um, how you get fulfillment, though, evolves. Um, early in my career, um, I probably, I'm using probably <clears throat> euphemistically, 
I probably did or said some things that uh, were not optimal um, because I had a mission, right? I had a, something I wanted to accomplish or early in my career. Um, you know, I literally grew up in a trailer park with a divorced mom. I was the youngest of four kids. Um, and you hear a lot of people talk about <clears throat> having a fear of failure. Um, so for me, fear of failure was a palpable, real thing. I never wanted to be back there again, so to speak. Um, nothing wrong with that, right? I've embraced, and that's part of my personality. Part of what's made me the human being I am today is the diverse lot of people and things that I saw and experiences experienced when I lived in a trailer park. And that sounds maybe absurd, uh, but I think that's really important to, to continually assess your own uh, level of satisfaction or fulfillment. So by evolving, uh, what I mean by that is early in my career, um, and I'm a Gen Xer, right? I'm 54 years old. Um, the world has changed um, today. Is that good? I don't know. Is it bad? I don't know. I'm not here to judge. I'm not judgy judge a lot, as my <laughs> wife would say. Um, however, um, in my day, back when I was a kid, um, you worked hard. Hard stop, awkward pause again, right? You worked hard. Um, you know, people I grew up with, again, in the trailer park, you think about that for a second, um, and even through high school, um, we moved into a kind of your run-of-the-mill, lower-middle-class um, neighborhood. Uh, but in high school, it's so interesting to think, uh, and I don't know your all your backgrounds and circumstances, but when I was in high school, people getting out of high school, they used to think, you know, well, I'm going to aspire to, when I get out of high school, I'm going to work for Ford, or I'm going to work for GE, or I'm going to work for UPS. Those were the aspirational, right? There was no lawyer, doctor. Um, that was the pinnacle, right? And then below that was, I'm going to be a manager of McDonald's or Papa John's. or, And then below that was, I'm going to work at the counter, at a retail establishment or whatever the case is, right? So there's different perspectives um, at different times of life, partly because of our backgrounds, uh, but partly because of back to that genetic cocktail of who you are and what you were taught. I was taught very and had, you know, I've had a couple of uh, great professional mentors, two really prominent professional mentors. Um, but before that, I had two really important mentors who were my mom and dad. Um, my dad was a militant level disciplinarian. Uh, he was not in the military, uh, but militant level OCD, right? Not a bad human being, but, you know, my wife's father, uh, and I don't know if it's okay to curse on here, but Perfectly my, fine. my wife's uh, father says, don't half-ass things, put your full ass into it. My dad was a full-ass kind of guy, right? You full-ass everything. Put your full ass into that. I just said ass a lot. I apologize. <laughs> just kidding. Um, the point of that, though, is my dad was very militant, disciplined, always had the you know, nicest clothes, not meaning the most expensive clothes, but he always dressed nicely. He worked at GE in the factory, not in management. Um, but when he got off work, You'd never know it, right? I mean, he always wore really nice clothes. He always had cool cars. 
uh, and to this day, I still like really nice clothes and I like cool cars and things like that. And I love discipline, right? Would I have learned that if it wasn't for him? No, frankly speaking. Um, my mom, on the other hand, was uh, June Cleaver. And again, I'm an old guy. So June Cleaver was the mom on Leave it to Beaver. She was your all-American mom, wonderful human being, nurturing mother, but also very strong and smart, right? So all of this stuff. Um, so my dad, you know, think about raising your fist. Like, oh, we're going to do it this way. And then he would walk out of the room and she'd be like, okay, now here's how we're going to do things. Right? She was the human in the room, the adult in the room. And uh, I got to learn both of those things. And wow, what a lesson. Uh, I've told my mom on multiple occasions, she's my hero. She's my mentor of life. Why do I say my mom and not my dad? It's not because he was the hardcore disciplinarian. It's because she had balance. He had um, lack of balance, right, shall we say. Um, for him, it was hardcore all the time. We're going to do everything with, with greatness. And that's influential. Like I said, I still want to do everything with greatness. But I balance that with my mom's, it's okay. We're going to get through this. <laughs> you know, we're going to treat each other with empathy and respect and always respect everybody. doesn't matter who they are, but don't let people take advantage of you, right? Think of, you know, my mom talking here. Those were wonderful role models and wonderful uh, mentors in my life. Uh, so again, a long way to answer that. But. And I, I like the way you answer that. And thinking about leadership, if you had to choose between a leader who doesn't have any balance, they're either your mom or your dad, which one do you think you would choose? Um, obviously the one that has balance. Yeah. Uh, notice I said about my mom, she was not just a nice lady. Um, not just a nice woman um, who would always have a smile. You know, there's the old expression. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything, right? That sounds like everybody's mom. Uh, but the balance is, is the key. Balance is the key to life, um, really, uh, in professional life or personal life. Back to the predisposition for we react a certain way because our gut and mind tells us, I should be defensive right now. We should go into fight or flight mode, um, right? Because that person just offended me. It doesn't matter if you're at the supermarket or in a business meeting, right? I'm offended by that. So my ego is going to take over. And ego is a very important and strong word. Most people don't realize the depth of ego. Uh, a lot of things, like I said early in my career, I did were out of ego. Uh, I wanted to be successful. Uh, and in back then, it was more zero-sum. I'm going to be successful, and I'm going to beat you. Um, so it was competition. You have to have a level of competition. Uh, as I got older and get older, you realize competition doesn't have to be zero-sum. Win-win um, is an overused expression, uh, but mutual success uh, is really how I think about win-win. It doesn't matter if it's five people in a uh, a party, uh, five people in a, a transaction. Think of a way for all of them to win in some way. It could be emotionally and psychologically. It may not be financially. Um, but the balance is what rules the day. And again, think about what you want as a culture. Um, it's funny that I used earlier unintentionally that Jack Welsh was the, oh, we're going to do everything my way and we're going to hit these numbers. And if you don't like it, get out of here. <clears throat> My dad worked at GE for 38 years, right? Um, 
that's not the culture I would enjoy working in, right? The Jack Welchian culture. Uh, culture. All due respect to Jack Welch. Uh, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. Um, I would rather have the balanced culture. Um, you know, Jim Collins, author Jim Collins, uh, he talks about good to great leaders are more like Socrates or Abraham Lincoln. And I love that analogy um, because Socrates and Abraham Lincoln, you may have noticed from history, are not stupid people. They're very intelligent people, but they were intelligent people with a soul and a heart and an ability to have empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the balance that I try to draw. I'm constantly thinking as what, well, regardless if it's a go back to my minimal acceptable to optimal, if it's something optimal <clears throat> and I'm getting ready to make a decision and I know whether it's in my role today or a CEO or, or, or growing up in my professional life, if I'm going to alienate and upset people by this decision, I'm going to find a way to be diplomatic about it. I'm not going to go, <laughs> you know, I won, you lost. Uh, I'm the winner. Um, so having balance uh, is much better. And the reason I, I bring that up is because when you when we think about a lot of the influential leaders throughout time, I'm sure there's great examples like Marcus Aurelius was one who, he was an amazing leader, but a key attribute he had and a lot of other leaders had is he didn't really want to lead. So there's a lot of real just people who get to power because they do have that, you know, that philosophy like your dad that gets them to that power. And there's a lot of people who, you know, they may have the balance, but that balance can hold them back from, you know, really going for those power positions like CEO. Right. And I, I just, I find it interesting how majority of our leaders today have the, they don't have the balance, but they're nevertheless they're in leadership positions. I guess how do you look at maintaining balance, but also striving for that top position? Is it just focusing on who, bringing people up with you? Is there ever times where you do have to just focus on, you know, let's be great and this is this is what's going to happen? Yes, to all of that. Um, again, I try to find balance in the incorporation of all of the variables um, so whatever I'm doing and I was told multiple times this is one of the great compliments of my life but I was told multiple times as a CEO I never thought CEOs could be good human beings uh, and they use those words specifically because my first principle in life is be a good human be a good human being it's not hard smile be polite all right do good things, make a positive impact on other people, make a positive impact on the earth, whatever it is, be positive, right? Um, so I, I would say, that, you know, again, knowing you're going to alienate people, knowing you're going to upset people, um, knowing you're going to make a decision that people are vehemently opposed to and think is just wrong, uh, wrong as a human, wrong for the company, having the conviction conviction and the discipline to make that decision anyway is my mm. point um that's a leader um not saying me personally but uh, how i judge other leaders as well is knowing the difference um of oh well i'm not gonna do that because tanner might not like it right i'm gonna be a good person i'm gonna play for the team um that's good largely most of the time some of the time it's not good all the time um Tanner and I may have different perspectives about a certain topic, um, 
But guess what? Only one person's in the hot seat. So you got to make a call. Uh, but you don't make the call on what I personally want. It's not I want to beat you right now. Uh, it's what do you really think? All the variables I just talked about in that spectrum, uh, I've taken all that into consideration. I'm going to try to convey that in a way to you that is... Um, the lowest amount of insult involved and the most diplomatic uh, and empathy and really think of what it's like. I use the expression all the time. We're sitting across the table from each other, but put yourself in the other person's shoes. You've all heard that, but think of your, if you were on the other side of the table, um, you know, I've negotiated deals all over the planet um, and had the great benefit of traveling all over the world and doing business all over the world. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. You don't just show up and go, here's what we want, and I hope you like it. Um, you have to learn about, first, their culture, back to being a good human being. Um, when I walk into the room, I'm not just going to start talking about the negotiated points in our contract or whatever it is we're, we're talking about. I'm going to learn about your culture as much as I can. You can't be an expert uh, on every uh, city and country on the planet, but make an effort. I'm going to learn a little bit about the language. Uh, when I walk into a room, I don't care if it's in Dubai, Argentina, London, uh, preferably they speak English, um, <laughs> Japan, wherever you are. The point is learn about the culture, learn a few words. Uh, I always tell people when you travel internationally, not just for business, always learn how to say at least, minimally acceptable, at least hello and thank you. Most two most important expressions you can convey to somebody. I don't care if you're, again, in France or New Zealand, wherever you are. <clears throat> Talk to people in their language, um, and they will respect you for that. But more importantly, they'll be like, my gosh, this person actually took a second to not be an, quote, ugly American and come in and just tell me how it's going to be. Um, they actually took the time to learn about our culture a little bit. He took the time to learn about our language. He took the time to learn about our economic system, our political system. There's a lot that goes into that. Uh, but be a good human uh, first. Yeah, so we will definitely come back to more of like the international business. We want to talk more about that. But I did want to ask this question. Building off the 60% that makes a CEO unique that you found in your experience, um, one of those things sounds like, you know, specialization or, or department, you know, where they came from, how they built, you know, their, their professional career. Uh, and it sounds like yours is franchising, correct? Mm -hmm. So, you know, franchising, at least for me, is one of those buzzwords, business buzzwords that a lot of people have a very basic understanding of, uh, but don't exactly get very deep into because not all businesses franchise or, or you know, markets actually are in that. Um, kind of practice. So within the past few years, you were recognized as one of the top 100 global influencers in franchising by CEO Samba. Oh, you're just saying that. <laughs> and correct me if I pronounce that wrong, but I thought if anybody could, you could give us a jargonless, might have made that word up. Yeah. In other words, a plain English explanation of what franchising is and, and what it looks like to do it well. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Um, and for me, back to the word ego, jargon is for people with egos. And again, I don't care what line of business you're in, what career you're in, what profession you're in. Um, jargon is for people that want to say things to make them feel smarter than the person on the other side of the table. Um, if you are a good human and you're empathetic, 
you will say things that people can understand. If I want to sound like I'm smart, smarter than you, it's more of an ego play. So, um, thank you for the question. Franchising essentially think about it as, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do business. Um, Starbucks, uh, all Starbucks are corporate owned. I shouldn't say all magic Johnson actually has a franchise, but he's a rare exception. Um, all of their stores are corporate owned, so they're not franchise. You can't go to starbucks.com and become a franchisee. Um, so they own all their stores, all that's corporate revenue, corporate uh, EBITDA. Um, Papa John's is a franchise. Uh, so you can go to papajohns.com and go to the franchising section and apply uh, to become a franchisee. What does franchising mean, essentially? Um, it essentially means I've created a business doesn't matter just thinking about the companies we've talked about um, doesn't matter if it's blockbuster or ge or uh, procter and gamble um, papa john's whatever the case is you started a company um, and it's worked that's pretty important it's worked uh, back to the profitability point again um, if my business has worked i can decide do i want to open more of them um, and more of them these days could be more an online presence it doesn't have to mean uh, i'm going to open ten thousand bricks and mortar physical retail locations but you have a choice you can do all of those corporate um, and in many cases those are privately held corporate stores and then they get to a point of success and they become publicly traded but they still stay corporate stores like starbucks mcdonald's is a franchise um, so mcdonald's obviously very successful outlets all over the world <clears throat> but you can become a franchisee uh, of mcdonald's so it essentially just means again regardless of your line of business you come up with a good business format you have not only a good idea but you've done it you know that's key you've done it um, franchising is regulated by the federal trade commission um, so there are certain things you have to do to be qualified to be a franchisor um, every year, every franchisor has to create a, what they call an FDD or a franchise disclosure document. That document has 23 items that are all the same uh, for every franchise. The data in those 23 elements are different, but the things that you have to present, think of a prospectus. Uh, this is the prospectus mm -hmm. uh, for a franchise that says caveat emptor, buyer beware. Here's our kind of business model here's our background here's our expenses uh, or uh, people that are involved uh, it's our leadership it's our whether we've had bankruptcies or not our financials um, what your average investment uh, is going to be many things in that fdd um, but you present that to somebody with franchising uh, as opposed to corporate owned again corporate you have an operations manual uh, i've built a business and i can give you a manual on how to operate that that one location or you can do multiple of them but that's how to operate the business think about it it's a pyramid um, right at the bottom of the pyramid you have a business format next level on that business uh, format is I'm going to support somebody else who's building that business format um, there's also licensing uh, a lot of people ask me what's the difference between a license and a franchise a license essentially says um, you know, if I started Big T's Pizza uh, as opposed to Papa John's, um, I could have 
five big T's pizza, uh, and it works pretty well. Uh, but, you know, that franchising sounds like a lot of work. I don't really want to go through the FTC and do all the work uh, to create a corporate office with support staff that are going to support franchisees and marketing and IT and operations and purchasing and all the different things, right? Um, so I might just license you my name uh, where you can open your own Big T's Pizza and I'm going to say you pay me 1% or 2% as a license fee uh, for using my name because I've created a business that is successful. People know Big T's Pizza is awesome, of course. Um, so you can use my name, but I'm not going to support you. In fact, I'm prohibited from supporting you. Um, I'm prohibited from supporting you because, again, to support somebody, you have to be a franchise. Uh, and if you're going to be a franchise, you have to be regulated by the Federal Trade Commission uh, that says you actually are going to do the documentation required to support other people um, and actually support other people. So corporate, um, think of a Starbucks or, or you know a lot of different companies that are all corporate-owned. Franchise, it can be a mix, by the way. Um, Papa John's, for example, has a lot of corporate stores. I'm not sure how many uh, now, but when I left um, 13 years ago, probably 20%-ish of all the Papa John's stores, and there are like 5,000 globally now, uh, but about 20% in the United States were corporate-owned, and then about 80% were franchised. That's very important for a franchisor, though, to make that decision, um, and I, don't, I won't go too deep into that. Um, but think about, again, the profitability of a company. If I own a store, and if I own 20%, imagine I had 100 stores, just for e easy math. 20 of my stores were corporate-owned. 80 of them were franchised. So for 20 of those stores, imagine they do, again, for easy math, a million dollars in revenue each. And imagine, for easy math again, they do 20% EBITDA each. So I'm doing a million dollars, 20% EBITDA, 200 grand, 200 grand times 20 stores. That's a lot of money. For the other 80, those people are paying me a 5% royalty. So 5% of those 80 stores on a per store basis is much less than 20%, right? And I'm not making financial performance representations about what any company does on a per store. This is just example math. Uh, but the point is, you can make a decision to have one or no franchise uh, stores. You can make a decision, frankly, you even be a franchisor and have no corporate-owned locations. Um, Moe's Pizza, or Moe's, uh, if you've been to Moe's, is the burrito concept. Uh, Moe's Pizza, I've got pizza on the brain. Um <laughs> Moe's has no corporate, or at least used to not have any corporate locations. They opened some Moe's. They were successful. They became a franchise. They divested all their, their corporate-owned stores. They're a franchise. Um, so some people might want to have more corporate stores because that revenue of the corporate stores is really important to them. Some people may say, I don't want the hassle of actually operating stores. We're just going to franchise this, and we'll spend our time supporting franchisees. So the thing about it is corporate-owned a mix of corporate franchise, just franchise, or license are kind of the, the gamut. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I was uh, curious. So if what is the ultimate benefit to being a franchisee versus, say, let's say you, you're passionate about pizza restaurants. You can either open up a Papa John's franchise or tr start your own restaurant. What, what would be the benefit of doing a franchise versus just starting your own? Yeah. 
I'll do Papa John's the um, service of not making Papa John's the example, uh, but I take your your point. Why would you franchise instead of being so back to Big T's Pizza? Uh, let's imagine it's my pizza shop. I've started it; it's awesome. It's been great. I decide to franchise, um, and other people want to become a franchisee. Well, why not just start Big J's or Big M's or Big L's or whatever your name is, right? Why not start your own? Essentially, it's remember what I said about starting a franchise. The most important thing about it is you've created a business format. You have an operations manual. You know what you're doing. You've actually done it, and it works, right? Anybody can start a business. Does it work after one year, three years, five years, ten years? Does it still work? Um So I would say that's number one, it works. Um, So when you decide, am I going to start big J's instead of big T's pizza, you're on your own. So good luck. Um, And I don't say that just sarcastically, but somewhat sarcastically. Um, You've probably done research and we've all heard multiple statistics. Most of them are wrong, Uh, but we've all heard statistics about the number of businesses that fail. Uh, I say most people are wrong because it fluctuates from year to year. Um, and it is heavily reliant on the economy and the regulatory environment and the political environment and all of those things. But you can go out and start your own company and you may be wildly successful. You know, Papa John had to start with one Papa John's. Uh, and it worked. Pretty important. Then a second, then a fifth, then 5,000, right? Um but he had the, the ability to think about it works and I'm going to put the passion and energy behind supporting other people to be successful. Um, when I say you're on your own, quasi sarcastically, um, you're on your own. You figure it out. Good luck. Um, so you have to create your own business, your own operations manual, create your own marketing plan, um, create your own purchasing uh, approach. Decide what IT means are uh, important to you uh, and selling whatever widgets you're selling, um, you figure it out and you muddle your way along. So I've been in franchising for decades um, and back to the word fulfillment, which is very important. Uh, One of the biggest fulfillment factors for me is helping people start their own business um, because they're not on their own. When you start a franchise, we're here to help. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts on, uh, franchising in generally or in general, but, um, it's basically you have support, you have people behind you that are not only talking the talk, uh, they've walked the walk. Um, when you become a franchisee and you click the door open at your grand opening for the first time, you've got people there to help you. Um, when you open big J's pizza and you're on your own or whatever your individual, store is you're on your own again um oh my gosh a customer said this what do i do oh my gosh our pepperoni didn't show up what do we do oh my gosh the pos station the point of sale system you know cash register doesn't work what do i do uh oh my gosh we're out of cash what do i do right yeah and in deciding franchisees are do are there I guess, criteria they have to meet before coming one? Because I guess what my worry is, okay, so you have a model that works, but you also still need that good leader who can utilize that model and make it work. So how do franchisors and franchisees go about balancing that uh, and 
that's a, that's my question. How do franchisees balance that? Yeah, we're going to have to extend the time of this podcast. <laughs> now we're talking my language. No, um, any franchise, there's a, a you know an industry, um, very important uh, company in the industry called the International Franchise Association. Right, so they're collection of franchisors really all around the world uh, as is the name international franchise association it started mostly with u.s franchisors but now there are people all over the planet that franchise and they come together via the the international franchise association to talk about um, best practices right so they can give you a here are the top you know five ten things you should do to qualify quote qualify somebody um there's an old joke which is not funny um in the franchising world uh and this goes back to kind of the mcdonald's point um mcdonald's has done a great job in franchising and they they've grown all over the planet very disciplined in how they operate um in fact i commonly uh challenge people to say what would mcdonald's do in this situation um because you, you you're predisposed to think in franchising, again, back to the, well, Tanner's my bud, so I want to do something that's going to make him happy. Um, sometimes you have to protect franchisees from themselves. Um, most franchisees are not, uh, at least don't start, as great business people. I may have a passion for pizza, uh, but I may be a horrible business person. Um, that's where a franchise helps, right? That helps me go into my Again, whether it's Papa John's or Big T's Pizza, whatever it is, helps me go into my store and do what I do. What I do is make pizzas and make people smile on the other side of the counter and give great customer service and a delicious pizza. Um, oh, I'm supposed to file tax returns? Um, I'm supposed to submit profit and loss statements to the franchise? Or what is that? Um, and so most of them are not great business people. So. The old joke in the franchise world is <clears throat> the qualification process is two steps. Um, do you have a pulse and do you have a checkbook? Not the best qualification process, no. but that's also <clears throat> why it's regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. And it's like a prospectus, um, that franchise disclosure document. So when you qualify somebody, I've evolved... Um, Today, the current qualification process that I use is about 30 points. Well, that sounds excessive. 30 points. I just want to flip some pizzas and, and make people happy. Um, so we go through 30 points to make sure. Um, I would refine it to two steps. I jokingly say this to people about the pulse and the checkbook. My two steps are uh, equally simple, but they're much better. Um back to optimal um, they are I'm gonna give you everything you need to make a good business decision step one step two is I'm gonna get from you everything we need to make a good business decision it's like a marriage right the franchise qualification process is like courting uh, it's the dating part uh, you're getting to know each other you're learning more about each other um, it's a little less romantic when you're asking for personal financial statements and, and things like that. Resumes, uh, doing background checks, criminal checks, and credit scores, all the fun stuff. Uh, but you're getting to know each other. Um, by the way, while people are going navigating that 30-point franchise qualification process, 
you're getting to know how they navigate the 30 point qualification process. Um, so there's a human back to the human factor um, and the marriage point through the 30 points. If I'm asking you for your personal financial statement, and if I'm asking you to send in basically an application, um, you're going to be revealing a lot of personal information to me, um, not just financial information, but again, criminal background checks. You find out a lot of things about people. If we're working together brilliantly through that, through that process and we're getting along great uh, and we're doing those things, by the way, in a reasonable amount of time, that franchise qualification process shouldn't take 10 years. If it is, that tells me something about you. Maybe you're the not, you're not the best fit for this franchise if it, because once you're approved, you can't take 10 years to submit your monthly P&Ls, right? So there are the clinical 30 points in the franchise qualification process, and then there's the human points in the, the qualification process. But the qualification process is essentially um, deciding, do you have the business chops um, to run the business? Are you economically able to do it? Uh, and are we going to get along? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so when franchising, you said it's, it's like a marriage, right? There's a give and take between both parties. You're getting to know them. They're getting to know you. There has to be mutual understandings. I mean, it's complicated enough to do it here with, you know, in America where the culture is the same, but how does that change when you're doing it in a country like Argentina or you're doing it in Dubai where even just how they say hello, you know, the different cultures, where they meet, where they do their business, how they do their business is just so different and not as intuitive as it is here in America. Yeah, it's totally easy. It's no problem at all. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it's a challenge. No two ways uh, about it. Um, you know, there's, there's strategic uh, and there's strategically opportunistic. Um, I bring that up now because a couple of reasons. A lot of companies, back to the pulse in the checkbook, um, they're not even strategically opportunistic. They're just opportunistic, right? You call me from Dubai, you want a franchise? Sure, come on in. You pay us the fee and you're in. Um, don't worry about those details of how we're actually going to get the logistics of pizza products to Dubai. Don't worry about that. Or your marketing and speak a different language and operate on different currency. And our IT and point-of-sale systems probably not going to work in your country. But other than that, it's going to be great. Um, so there's a lot of complexity, obviously, kidding aside. Um, you have to be strategic um, for sure. Uh, and I bring up the st strategically opportunistic is an expression I coined probably 25 years ago. Um, because back to the predisposition of all humans are different. Some humans in business will tell you absolutely have to be strategic stick to the strategic plan these are our core principles our core values and this is exactly what we do and you vary from that and we're dead we're not going anywhere right some people are like oh you know the wind blows that way squirrel you know we're gonna go wherever the money is um we got to grow this thing so it doesn't matter if it makes logistical sense um so i've said you kind of have to be strategically opportunistic um back to numbers that don't mean anything i would say generally speaking 75%-ish should be strategic. 25% can be strategically opportunistic. Yeah. It, prov provided the strategically opportunistic can actually work. Yeah. And I don't mean to interrupt, but when you're saying strategically opportunistic, it sounds like calculated risk, right? You got to right. take a shot. Absolutely. Uh, back to the spectrum, everything is risk reward. Um, so you have to decide what are the risks and 
Um, you know, it's funny. I, I talk about the Jedi mind trick. Um, if you're a Star Wars fan, they say Jedis are really uh, able to do what they do because they can envision the future before it happens. So it's not that just that they have magical, mystical powers. It's that they envision what's going to happen before it happens so they can react. It looks like they're reacting faster. Uh, when you're strategically opportunistic, you have to think about what's going to happen in the future, but before it happens. Um, so strategic, again, is we're going to have blinders on and just do a minimum number of, of things in a limited geographical area. Opportunistic is we're going to go everywhere. Strategically opportunistic is kind of a, a blend of those two things. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, when you go internationally, um, there's so many, so many things you need to think about. And I, I've actually spoke uh, at multiple venues about this. I've lived it uh, and learned it. Uh, haven't made too many mistakes, but we all make mistakes uh, in our lives and careers. Um, some things you're, you know, you're pretty sure it's going to work and it doesn't. Um, all you can do is prepare the best you can. Do that Jedi mind trick. Try to research and learn as much as you can and envision what the future is going to be like, but nobody's perfect. Um, but calculated risk, that's why I say 75, 25, right? Kind of try to stick to what your core focus and core principles are and core strengths and then take some risk as well. But everything is risk reward. Um, you know, China is a great example. Um, when I first started, I had the weird um, circumstance of accepting the position to become the, the head of uh, global or international development at Papa John's uh, the first week of September of 2001. Um, second week of September of 2001, obviously we all know what happened September 11th. So it was a weird time to start my international career. Uh, you know, there used to not be a thing called TSA. Uh, there used to not be uh, all of the regulatory environment or, or criminal background checks, including now Patriot Act checks that were enacted after September 11th, where if you're qualifying a franchisee and they're a terrorist, that's probably not good. Um, so there are things you have yeah. to do, but learning about the political systems, the economic systems, and, and taking some risk. But in, back to the uh, your business model uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, or southern Indiana, where Papa John started, obviously it works. Does that mean it's going to work everywhere? I mean, that's a very core question in franchising, too. Um, when I first started going to China, we thought, oh, my gosh, China is enormous. This is, you know, again, 20-plus years ago. Um, there was a lot of growth in China and India, um, a lot of the emerging markets in uh, kind of Eastern Europe. Um, but China uh, was one of the first places I started going regularly. And a lot of interest. Um, the interesting thing, too, about international versus in the United States, somebody might want to do one Papa John's or three Papa John's. In China, when I first started negotiating a franchise deal over there, they wanted all of Asia. The franchise, they wanted all of Asia. Not just China, which is enormous, but all, I want all of Asia. Now, mind you, this these people have the economic means to do all of Asia. Uh, but back to the point of strategically opportunistic, um, a lot of people would say, give me $5 million and you can have all of Asia. Uh, is that the best strategic choice? No. Uh, and for many reasons. What if they open store number one in Shanghai, China, uh, and they're terrible at operating Papa John's? 
and their jack wagons. You've signed a contract with them to do all of Asia, right? So I won't get into the detail of what that could potentially look like. Um, so it's better to start with a smaller footprint, right? Do a province of China, then do multiple provinces of China, then do all of China, then think about expanding outside there. Um, but China, I bring up as the example, more importantly, because uh, we thought, you know, billion plus people, um, you know, the world is our oyster. We can open so many stores over there. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I started doing research on China and learning about it, a little bit of the language, culture, culture economic systems, um, history, etc. Um, and then I started talking to people about what do you think about pizza right on the ground in China? Uh, and they're all like, oh, pizza's delicious. You know, I studied in the U.S. and we had, you know, pizza all the time. Love Papa John's. Um, I'm like, cool, where are the pizza places around here? Um, and they're like, well, we have Pizza Hut. There's like, you know, a couple Pizza Huts. There's not a lot of pizza places, uh, long story short, um, because most people in China were not really familiar with pizza. Kind of an issue, right? We should probably take a note of that. Um, second really important thing is we're a delivery carryout concept. Delco, you may have heard of. Um, Delco means delivery carryout versus a dine-in, right? So Delco uh, in the U.S., we do pizza delivery. That's kind of the core business model. Uh, in China, interestingly, in the U.S., you can have Chinese food delivered anywhere. But in China, there's not a lot of delivery. Um, so they are not familiar with pizza. Uh, they're not big on delivery. But other than that, <laughs> we're pretty sure it's going to work. Uh, so kidding aside again, uh, we had to think about paradigm shift um, so the first papa john's that were opened in china looked more like a macaroni grill they were big full service wait staff white gloved person at the door opening the door um, it was impressive you know very posh place not like you would see in the u.s and by the way and it also had pizza and salads and side items and uh, rice soups right so most of the things were pizza-related. Some of the things were local, right? Because in, in, at the time, anyway, it's still somewhat like that. But at the time, think about it cleanly. Um, everybody under 40, cool. We like American things, and we're open to, to change. Everybody over 40, yeah, we're good with, uh, you know, fish and soup and rice and staples. Um, so we don't want that pizza stuff. So we had to vary the menu. But we also had to vary the core business model. It went from a 1,200 square foot or 1,400 square foot delivery carryout location to a you know, full service restaurant. Um, repatriating money from China back to the U.S. is not the simplest thing uh, in the world. So, again, a lot of things that you had to, to think about. But simplify it by saying if you start a business and it works in Louisville, Kentucky, that does not mean that it'll work in Seattle, Washington, much less China or Dubai or New Zealand or mm. Argentina. And if you were going to take it into those international markets, it sounds like the way to do that is slowly and you learn as you go. Yeah. You know, there's the old expression of you have to go a little bit slow before you can go fast. Um, so take your time and do it right. Uh, put your full ass into it. Um, no, but make sure you're doing it right and then replicate. By the way, you can replicate very fast once it works. I mean, these are... In the U.S., I'll, I'll say, and most people are like, yeah, I want to do one or three or five Papa John's. <clears throat> Internationally, they want to do whole provinces, states, or countries. 
Um, so most of the deals um, that I worked on there were to do a whole country. Um, so imagine the economic means you have to have. Imagine the relationship that you have to build and, and nurture um, to be able to endure that relationship for the long term. A lot goes into it. And when you're, when a franchisor is thinking about, you know, opening up stores in different countries, is it more on the franchisee to figure out how that's going to work or you as the franchisor? Because obviously the franchisee is the one who lives there. They may have more understanding of all the culture, everything that you're going to educate yourself on. But ultimately, like with China, was the franchisee in China the one who figured out, let's make this an open style restaurant? Or was that the franchisor who came up with that idea? It's a relationship. So it's, um, so back it's a little of both. Okay. Um, you know, we say um, modestly um, and with naivete, um, right? You have to back to the ego point. You have to realize you can be naive and you may not be the smartest person in the room. So you have to listen and adapt. Um, so we said, let's keep, you know, again, 70, 75% core business model, but then let's listen to them. And not only the prospective franchisee, Let's talk to the U United States Chamber of Commerce. Let's talk to other people that have expanded, other businesses that have expanded to China. Uh, what were the pros and cons? What worked great? What was terrible? What should we avoid? Um, how did you set up, you know, pepperoni delivery? Did you grow, um, you know, things in China, or did you ship everything in a shipping container from the United States? How do you do those things? So it's it's definitely a, a compromise. Yeah, one thing I've noticed in traveling is if you go to a McDonald's in Spain, where I've been to a McDonald's, it's, it is different. It's even just how the food tastes. It's honestly a little bit better. And then also just there's all the always rumors and stuff like, oh, and McDonald's in India has the McCurry and things like that. They come up with new dishes that is more for the culture. And I was always just, is that the franchise or coming up with these ideas or the franchisee and conversation it's a blend for sure and you know back to your point about mcdonald's um big mac in most of india probably not gonna go so well right the cow is sacred uh, and they don't eat beef but other than that the big mac's gonna be awesome so they have a veggie mac mm -hmm. um, is what it's called pizza hut when i was doing research for papa john's um, most of the pizza Hut locations over there literally had on the sign pizza hut veg only Right. So it wasn't pepperoni pizza. Right. It was, they were announcing that it, it's Pizza Hut, but it's Indian Pizza Hut. Um, so you have to adapt for sure. And you have to realize what's going to work and what's not going to work. That's awesome. Looking back on the time with Papa John's and even Agile Pursuits, are there any key decisions specifically in the international markets that you look back on? Um, and that had huge impacts that, that you're really like, that that's a big accomplishment, like big wins based on some of the key decisions that you were a part of. Yeah. You know, like I said, there's lots of mistakes, uh, and lots of things that, that I could have done better. Um, but yeah, certainly some, some big wins. Um, you know, if you want to be successful in your career, you should make more good decisions than bad decisions. Right. Uh, so a couple that, that jump out at me. I mean, I talk a lot about China, but it meant a lot to me. Um, I'll say first when I, one of the mentors I mentioned earlier, um, his name's Bill Van Epps. He had done business with Pizza Hut uh, 
and PepsiCo, and he had been all over the planet. I had been a delivery driver with Papa John's at 17 years old, right out of high school. Um, and I decided I'm going to map out a strategic path to be exactly where I got today. Totally kidding, right? Back to the Forrest Gump thing. Life happens and you go on all these twists and turns, right? But I was a delivery driver because some of my buddies were delivery drivers at Papa John's and we were all going to University of Louisville in the fall. We just graduated high school. It was kind of a summer thing. Um, so I, I had the ability to be a delivery driver. Uh, I worked in a law firm environment for about 10 years, um, starting in the mailroom, making copies and you know, running errands and things like that. was a proofreader, uh, still a proofreader today. Um, I became a corporate and employee benefits paralegal. I went back to Papa John. I was recruited by uh, John's brother, Chuck Schnatter, who's the other mentor I mentioned of my life, um, to come back to Papa John's and work in the legal department. Um, and then I decided in the legal department I wanted to work in the franchising department because I thought, wow, it's really cool. I love the law. I love the principles of law. I love that as an underpinning of professional world uh, when you learn about law that applies to anything else you could do. Um, why do I bring all this up now? I was a delivery driver, so I know how Papa John's worked. Uh, I worked in the legal department, so I knew how the kind of contracts work, the franchising, franchise disclosure document, FTC, Federal Trade Commission. Um, I worked on the U.S. franchising side where we were exploding after Papa John's went public. Um, so this guy named Bill Van Epps comes in uh, to Papa John's. We were recruiting him to really develop a global strategy for Papa John's, not just a U.S. strategy. Um, he's like, well, let me get this straight. You've been a you worked in the stores, you've worked in the legal department, you worked in the U.S. franchising side. You've got to go international. you got to join my international team. Uh, and I said, you know, Bill, my international experience was I had been to like the Cayman Islands because I got <laughs> scuba certified and I went to Windsor, Canada because I had a buddy in the Coast Guard in Detroit. Windsor, Canada is literally right across the border. And he was like, you know, nobody has international experience till they have uh, international experience. Um, I say that as an underpinning because that Forrest Gump-esque path, you make mistakes and you do some things well and you work hard and you develop great relationships. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, one of the greatest achieve achievements to this day uh, was signing that first deal uh, in China. Um, because of all the research that was done, because of we developed a beautiful relationship uh, with the, the franchisee in China, uh, and we they have you know 700 plus stores now uh, in China. But you know, I won't disclose the amount, but they paid a very exorbitant sum of money to develop you know a couple hundred stores in, in China. Uh, so you know, at that point in my career, that was everything. I mean, it was enormous. Right? And I thought it was just cool number one back to that very cool word it's very cool to be able to develop that relationship and actually do papa john's in china are you kidding me right everybody talks about doing business in foreign countries but it was kind of a new thing uh, then for u.s companies to be doing business in china um the other thing i would say is back to the procter and gamble uh, part it's that gentleman that i mentioned bill van epps that recruited me to go to the international side he later became president of papa john's and then he left Papa John's to go to this little company called Procter & Gamble, you may have heard of, because they had this idea to experiment with turning some of their well-known brands into franchises. <clears throat> so everybody's familiar with Mr. Clean. Uh, 
everybody's familiar with Tide and all these products, right? hundred plus brands they have at Procter & Gamble. So they were like, how do we take these brands and create franchises out of them? Well, that should be easy. Uh, not so much. Um, so they hired him to be you know, CEO. Uh, I later became president and CEO, but he was the first CEO of that company. We're in Procter & Gamble's headquarters in downtown Cincinnati. It was a subsidiary of P&G. But, um, like I said, most people came, w- went to P&G right out of college, and they worked their whole career, though. So Bill and I were both kind of the outsiders, um, these guys that were brought in because of their experience. Um, and I allowed P&G for that. Uh, P&G has some of the smartest people on the planet. I mean, think of all the best schools all over the world. Um when people graduate from there, P&G would be high on their list to go to work for that company. Uh, it's a great company. Um, but to be able to go to that company as an outsider, um, mind you, a guy that grew up in a trailer park working at P&G, we're going to do something that's never been done, right? Most franchises start, Papa John's had one, then they had five, then they had 20. And people are like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. Uh, and then there's 5,000. Starbucks had one, and then a hundred, and then a thousand, right? So usually in franchising, you create a name, you create a business format and model, and you replicate that, and that's how you develop your name. So imagine Tide Dry Cleaners. Magic, right? It sounds magic. Um, Everybody knows Tide, and when we started talking about the idea of turning it into a business, right? P&G, by the way, didn't have franchises uh, at all. Uh, they were either licenses, or some people might use names of products at P&G for different purposes, uh, but they didn't. They weren't a service company. They were a product, consumer packaged good product uh, company. Um, so a big accomplishment was taking an idea, total experiment, and instead of creating one, then 20, then 1,000, and then people going, oh, I know the name, um, creating a franchise model out of a well-known brand. Again, like Mr. Clean, turning it into Mr. Clean Car Wash. Uh, Tide, turning it into a Tide Dry Cleaners and growing that. Um, it sounds like just add water, and that's definitely going to work. Uh, but like many businesses, there are trials and tribulations. And um, the dry cleaning industry, I could talk for 20 hours about this, but uh, the dry cleaning industry is growing mostly out of consolidation. Back to the blockbuster point um, there aren't a lot of new you don't see ken's dry cleaners and john's dry cleaners and, uh, opening up everywhere because guess what dry cleaning is not so much uh, a thing like it used to be uh, for the last hundred years um, so learning how to develop one a franchise and then paradigm shift of we're not going to grow that franchise like you normally do because it, that market share is not growing Dramatically, it's growing a little bit, but it's not growing like a pizza company. There are a million pizza places out there, but you could, we could, the four of us right now put together a few hundred thousand dollars and go open a pizza place today and it could take off, right? Is that an offer? Maybe. <laughs> uh, we'll have to consult the FTC on that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But, you know, with, with dry cleaning, that's, again, a, a model that's not growing and expanding. So, one, creating something out of nothing, that was really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. big accomplishment um, to paradigm shift of how to grow it. Um, I was pretty aggressive. Um, and a lot of 
people, I would say, were skeptical to the idea. Uh, but going out either via acquisition uh, or contacting people that were already dry cleaners to become a franchisee. Um, and we were pretty successful called conversions, right? That could be Thomas's cleaners uh, instead of Tide dry cleaners. Um, imagine, back to the point about be a good human, have empathy, be balanced. Um, imagine, and I mean it literally right now on the other side of the table, imagine you walking into a room to talk to a dry cleaning organization that's been around for a hundred years, 50 years, 80 years, 60 years, whatever the number, your dad was a dry cleaner, his dad was a dry cleaner, and his dad was a dry cleaner. So you've got whatever the name of the dry cleaners is. You walk in the door and say, you know, I know you've been in business for a hundred years, but how would you like to become a franchisee of Tide Dry Cleaner? How would you feel in that moment? It'd be tough. Be tough. First, again, back to ego. It would be tough not to instantly think, how insulting is and arrogant is this person on the other side of the table? We've been in business for a hundred years. You're going to come in here and tell me I should be a franchisee and give you five percent royalty of money I'm already making. Not easy. Um, but we were able to do uh, a number of deals and get a lot of those people who saw writing on the wall, right? These are smart, smart business people who were able to not act on ego, but act on evolution, um, adapt, uh, and decide, you know, the market share is not growing. Uh, by the way, if I'm Thomas's cleaners and I say, you arrogant SOB, I'm not going to join your company, think about, okay. What if right across the street from Thomas's cleaners, we open a Tide dry cleaners and it's got that beautiful circular target logo, the Tide logo right across the street, bright lights. How's your business going to perform? You could be the best cleaners on the planet. Uh, but again, branding, you know, marketing and branding are a huge part of franchising. You develop a reputation. Uh, and the first stores we were opening at Tide dry cleaners, super interesting People came in and they're like, Doink, you know, why didn't you think of this before? What took you guys so long? Um, my mom used Tide growing up. Her mom used Tide growing up. Her mom used Tide, right? It's a company that's been around since the 19, or brand that's been around since the 1940s. Um, so there's a lot of loyalty in that. But there's also, you know, in, in business, whether it's social media <clears throat> or bricks and mortar, um, when you have good branding and you have a good brand, it's tough, tough to beat. So I could be the best Thomas's dry cleaners um, and I could have customers that have come into my store for years or generations. Um, but if that beautiful Tide logo shows up across the street, that's tough, right? And it's not, uh, you know, you want to, again, be a good human and, and all of those things and peacefully coexist. So a way to peacefully coexist is let's both do business together. And uh, just for clarification, that I guess when people think of Tide, they may think of Tide Pods, just products that you can get on the shelves. A lot of Procter & Gamble products are such. In these situations, the franchisee had nothing to do with the products. It was just a, basically a, a storefront that was built off the product's brand. That's correct. And, okay, awesome. Yeah, that was the experiment I was referring to. <clears throat> you know, So they have 100-plus brands. So 
the very intelligent people at Procter & Gamble thinking about where do we want to be in 100 years um, or like we can continue to be CPG or consumer packaged goods company uh, or we can evolve and we can be both CPG and a service company and the service being the franchise um, or other businesses that offer services instead of just a product. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the idea was, again, instead of building one, then 20, then 100 uh, of something and developing a name, we already have 100 plus very well-known brands. Why don't we take those brands and create franchises out of them? So that makes sense. Again, a long way to get back to your question of yeah. a couple of wins. The China was big and the, the developing Thai drug line is, of course, becoming CEO, president and CEO of uh, the Agile Pursuits was um, journey of a lifetime. That's awesome. And now with your role at Wings and Rings, mm -hmm. kind of culminating everything like where what are you doing on a day-to-day -to -day today and where maybe is wings and rings what are your goals heading into 2023 and beyond yeah so it's it's interesting uh, Procter & Gamble is based in Cincinnati um, I had the opportunity to meet Nader Masade um, he's the owner and president and CEO of uh, formerly known as Buffalo Wings and Rings now Wings and Rings um, they changed the name and, uh, to avoid confusion with Buffalo Wild Wings mm -hmm. uh, because you'd be surprised. I could literally introduce myself. I'm Thomas Flaherty with Buffalo Wings and Rings. And people would be like, cool, I love Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, but I'm with Buffalo Wings and Rings. Right? So they took the buffalo out for that reason, uh, just FYI. Um, so I'm chief development officer there, but I had the opportunity to meet Nader. Um, we talked early in this podcast about fulfillment. Um, and I thought, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in my career. <clears throat> Still haven't hit that ceiling that I talked about with many people have uh, having a ceiling. Um, but the ceiling changes. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I said, it's not just a financial ceiling. It's a fulfillment ceiling. Um, and hopefully that never ends. Back to the green and growing part and the learning part. Um, I still wake up swinging every morning. Um, I still think about how am I going to achieve global domination um, every morning, right, when I wake up. Wings and rings, um, I'll start with the fulfillment part and then, then how it could grow, but the fulfillment part was, number one, instantly just hit it off with Nader, um, the owner and CEO. P&G's publicly traded company, Papa John's is a publicly traded company. Wings and rings is a privately held company. He owns it. He's the CEO. Um, so I won't go into a long dissertation about the differences. Both have great benefits. Both have disadvantages. Um, the great thing about a small privately held company is um, think about bureaucracy. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with some bureaucracy. But the things that you go through as a publicly traded company, things have to go through your department or your division and then to the senior leadership and then to the CEO and then to the board and then uh, think about PR impact and, you know, everything that's going to happen with every decision you make versus, you know, now I can go, Hey, Nader, I'm thinking about doing this. He's like, cool. Yep. Exit red tape. Creative control. It's awesome. Right. Again, publicly traded, you get a lot more money and you can grow faster and, you know, run higher and do all the stuff. Uh, jump higher. I think the uh, big thing for me, though, instantly was fulfillment. We hit it off. Great relationship. 
I thought this is a guy I would love to work with. So good human being first. Uh, secondly, this is a company that has about 60 stores. Um, so to complement Buffalo Wild Wings, they have about 1,600 stores just in the U.S. So I'm like, wow, I'm back to kind of with Papa John's. I started when I was a delivery driver, by the way, there were only five Papa John's. Uh, now they're, like I said, about 5,000 all over the world. So I'm like, there are 60. This company has been around since 1984, Wings and Rings, uh, formerly known as Buffalo Wings and Rings, but 60 stores. So I'm like, even if you modestly estimate you could do half as many um, as Buffalo Wild Wings, that's 800, 1,000 stores. We have 60. So back to the wake up swinging every day, my synapses start firing. I'm like, wow, great human being. The world is our oyster, right? Lots of greenfield development opportunity. What are we waiting for? Let's do this thing. Uh, right. So my role is um, chief development officer. I'm in charge of real estate, construction, design, store design, um, and, of course, franchising. Um, so any sites that we're looking at approving for real estate, uh, construction of the sites, uh, approving franchisees and the qualification process, and then what the stores are going to look like. Um that's kind of what I do, quote, but also what I do is we've got 60 stores, small companies, similar to, again, when I started at Papa John's, small corporate office, um, not a lot of people with franchising experience, certainly not global franchising experience, so a huge fulfillment factor for me is helping share best practices, and I'm kind of an informal board member uh, for Wings and Rings because of the experience I bring to the table. I'm not patting myself on the back as much as being able to say there is no right or wrong answer, um, usually. Sometimes there is. Uh, all I can say is, based on my 35-year you know, professional career-ish, um, this has usually worked pretty well, and this has usually not worked very well, right? And I certainly wish I had somebody on my team uh, that had that experience, Um 25 years ago that was talking to me uh and by the way i did chuck schnatter and bill van epps that i talked about so back to sending the elevator down for the next person uh, a lot of the fulfill fulfillment for me now is mentoring and sharing best practices and um, i'm an incredible insatiable uh nerd um back to that i think in charts and spreadsheets and word documents and powerpoints um it's amazing going from uh, not only the trailer park part of it, but going from a, a Papa John's to a Procter and Gamble, um, and then back to a company that's smaller. Um, the level of sophistication in Procter and Gamble, um, with like I said, some of the smartest people on the planet, um, and the processes and, and systems and things that they go through, and decision making, and stretching, and pulling, and discomfort, and comfort, and all all the stuff. Tremendous learning experience. Uh, Papa John's, the run that I had with Papa John's when we were growing, uh, many years we opened more than a store a day uh, at Papa John's. Uh, so a lot of growth. Um, and just such a remarkable environment. Uh, I talk about the relationship, um, and I apologize, John and Chuck, in advance, if you're listening, which I know you are. Kidding. Um the relationship with John Schnatter, Papa John, and Chuck Schnatter, his brother, his attorney was, or his brother was an attorney uh, by trade. He worked at that same law firm that I mentioned earlier that I worked at. 
only I was in the mailroom. He was a recent graduate from U of L. I'm like, I can't get away from you, Schnatter guys. <laughs> um, John was the maverick, right? He's your Elon Musk uh, type personality. Big, bold, um, driven, ambitious. One of the most inspirational people you could ever meet. Uh, bigger than life. Um, so when he talks about things, um, especially when you're younger in your career, when I met John, I was 17. He was only like 23 at the time and had five Papa Johns. But you can tell this was an assertive human being who's going to do big things in life. Um, so when I think about him, you know, in a senior management meeting um, or, you know, different um, day-to-day things, Papa John's, he would often walk in with the, you know, this is a podcast, so you can't see me shooting into the air. But you know, he would come in guns blazing. This is what we're going to do, and we're going to do that. And it's this is going to we're going to run through the wall. And I'm ambitious, and we're going to you know, inspirational, um, and it kind of phew, he's gone. Um, enter Chuck, who would be the balance, and come into the room uh, and say, "All right, guys, here's how we're going to do this. All right, we're practically break it down. It's going to be a very linear path. Right? I'm making up the words, but you get the point." Um, that relationship was incredible. Um, and the corporate environment, the culture you talked about earlier, the culture they built at that company was so inspirational, uh, especially in my formative kind of years. And I've tried to, to pass that along and, and replicate that in my career as well. That's awesome. Curious is the, did you have anything to do with the wings and rings in Danville, Kentucky? Yeah. You know, Tanner and I have talked about that. That was actually in place before I started there. Uh, but, you know, a big center college fan. And, yeah. Um, that franchisee actually has Danville, E-Town, Bardstown. Uh, just opened one in Campbellsville. Is getting ready to open one in Frankfurt. Uh, I was talking about doing one in Lexington, Shepherdsville. So he's a, a younger uh, gentleman uh, that's on the grow and just a remarkable individual in and of himself. So I can't take credit uh, for that. But I do still, as chief development officer, I'm working with him on building new stores. That's awesome. Uh, and signing up for new stores and growing, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. I know a lot of center students were very, very, very grateful um, that Wings and Rings opened. And it, I at least went there once or twice a month. It was one of the best spots in the small town of Danville. And the product's fantastic. It is. Right? It really I failed is. to mention that earlier, obviously, talking about the opportunity with the company for growth and Nader being a great human. But food is fantastic. It is. I mean, it most sports bars or sports restaurants the, the food is not great that's not the central focus the focus is the you know 65 inch tvs and the beer are flowing mm-hmm. um, but the food there is a lot of effort um, to make that food spectacular and success they do it yeah i, I appreciate the reputation especially in comparison to buffalo wild wings i mean it's a go-to spot for a lot of people, but you know what you're getting when you get there. It's subpar food and subpar service, just really big screens. And uh, Wings and Rings, that's a place I would go just to eat sometimes and then also to watch any of the games. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. <clears throat> I always say, you know, um, I quoted Richard Branson earlier. Another good quote of his is, you have to respect your competitors mm-hmm. uh, and then learn how to beat them. Yep. Right, so I do both. I respect Buffalo Wild Wings. And we think about they've done a lot of things remarkably well. Good for them. Uh, but we're going to compete. Yeah. Are we ready for the blitz round? Yeah, this has been phenomenal. We really appreciate the time. I mean, this is a great conversation. We could go on and on. 
um, just with all the experience you've had. Uh, so thank you for that. But we do want to fire a couple quick ones at you, if you wouldn't mind that. Sure. You down with that? Down. You want to start us off, Dylan? Yeah. What book has had the biggest impact on you or your career? Uh, I would say on my career, uh, good to great. Jim Collins, I quote him all the time. Um, a lot of great principles in there. It's lightning round, so I won't expound dramatically, but getting the right people on the bus and then getting them in the right seat, it's a big deal. Getting them on the bus is the culture thing. Getting them in the right seat is the productivity and profitability part. That's awesome. Uh, biggest culture shock in your international business experience? So undoubtedly, uh, India. So I had, I've been to 74 countries now, um, and the first time I went to India... Um, I had probably already been to, I don't know, 20, 25 countries. So I'd been to Central America and lots of Asia and Europe and lots of different places. But um, the culture shock in India was big, palpable, um, different, just the way of life, the traffic, um, the foods, the smells, um, wonderful, beautiful people. Um, you know, if you take the time again to learn about the history and culture and food and, and uh, economic systems, it's pretty cool but india okay i got one for you you were awarded the kentucky colonel uh what is that and why is there no r in colonel <laughs> this is good i'm hooked on phonics um so i would say i got that it's the highest honor uh they say in uh, the state um for a lot of the things that i talked about here for international work and representing kentucky kind of all over the world and as to why it's Pronounce Colonel with no R, I do not have an answer, although I do love good etymology stories. So you'll get back to me on that one. Will do. Awesome. And then last one here we like to wrap up with. So if business meetings had walk-up songs, what would yours be? They don't? Exactly. <laughs> Depends on which one you go to. Yeah, you know, I'm a musician uh, as well, and I've had the opportunity to speak at a lot of different forums all over the world, and a lot of them, like franchise conventions, you do have walk-up music. Awesome. Uh, so a couple of things that come to mind. One would be Dreams by Van Halen. Um, that's what dreams are made of, right? Inspirational, mm -hmm. aspirational. It should be in business and, and franchising. Uh, and the other one would be the Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. Um, if you're familiar with that one. Are you familiar with that yep. song? Yep. It's the uh, theme song and they use for Thor. Uh, but at franchise conventions, I often like to use superhero movie theme songs because I say franchisees are my heroes. There you go. I think I love it. our first guest to actually have had a walk-up song. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when we ask that question, they're like, oh, that's a really good question. I wish we did have those. And then you're the first one to be like, oh, I, they don't? <laughs> we, we should incorporate them at meetings, though, not just uh, at conferences. I like it. I like it. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Thomas. This was a great conversation. Quite welcome. It's my pleasure. appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Hey guys, it's Cal here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the How To Business Show. If you would like to stay up to date with upcoming episodes and what we're doing behind the scenes, make sure to follow us on social media. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and our website, www.htbshow.com. Finally, if you have a story to share or some feedback for the show, feel free to contact us at htbs at gillisanteam.com. Important links for today's episode can be found in the description. From all of us on the How To Business team, thank you for listening and see you next time.